Give your attention now to the reading of God's Word, continuing now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, For laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you this day for giving us your word. We praise you that you have ordained men to preach and have prepared ears to hear. For it is truly beautiful to hear your word proclaimed. So open our ears, Lord, and may we all hear what you have prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. We ask this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. Amen. Please be seated. So to re- recalibrate you on where we're at, you know, we picked up a couple months ago, started in 1 Thessalonians, and as you can recall, Paul uses the opportunity to write to the Thessalonian church, not a letter of condemnation of, of how bad they were, oftentimes what you see in, say, the letter to the Corinthians, but instead you're hearing much thanksgiving. And it's not a letter of total thanksgiving. There are still areas of concern that Paul had. But the general tone of Thessalonians is he's giving thanks for what the gospel had done and what God had done in these people's lives. So as we read through this, the entire letter is a response to what Timothy had gone and done. Paul, now stationed in Corinth, had sent Timothy back for a time. And while Timothy was there, he ministered amongst the saints in Thessalonica. And when he returned, he gave a report to Paul who quickly wrote back 
as we saw in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. And here, Paul's addressing those concerns. Now, the, the concerns that are in here, you'll find Paul highlights those. And he highlights them by beginning each section of a concern with the word brethren. You'll see in verse, or chapter 2, verse 1, For you yourselves know, brethren, that are coming to you is not in vain. This is where he's going to address what I'm talking about today, some potential problems that the people of Thessalonica may have had with the preaching and the men doing the preaching. Likewise, if you flip to uh, chapter 2, verse 17, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see you your face with great desire. Here he begins the section on persecution. He addresses Christian love, starting in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Later on in chapter 4, verse 13, he addresses issues about Christ's return. All of these begin with, but we, brethren. He addresses the brethren here. So in this section that we'll address today, realize that the focus of the topic is how much power that the man preaching will have, but it's not because of the man. It's because of the God that ordains the man and puts the man there for a very particular reason. And ultimately, all of the problems, from the one that we'll address today to all the other ones that Paul addresses to any of the problems in the church, they're going to be solved through the gospel. And as we covered last time, there is that power in the gospel. And the gospel, as we see here, is effective. So as we look at the particular passage here, uh, beginning out in verses 1 through 2, you can see that although there's much persecution going on, the, the team that was there, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, it didn't discourage them. They continued doing what they were doing. They had recently had to flee Philippi, and now they had to flee Thessalonica, And everywhere they're going, they're having to flee. But they're still proclaiming God's word. And so there was a boldness that was there, despite conflict. In order for that boldness to be present, that's not something of man. That's something of God, so that they would not shrink back in fear. For as a man, they simply would have cowered away, found something else to go do. But they chose to proclaim this boldly. And as a result of that, when you look down to verses 13 through 16, you see the results. And that's why Paul, he he jumps down to another form of thanksgiving in that small section in 13 to 16. He gives thanks again because of what the gospel is doing. It's effectively working in those, in you who believe. So we see here that the gospel is powerful and it is effective. But it's not effective in a vacuum is effective through the means that God ordains, particularly through the preaching of the word. So as you see in verse 13, the preaching itself, I'll read this, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So this word of God, this is what they were proclaiming in Thessalonica. This was the preached word of God there. They didn't stop by and drop off some Bibles and leave it and then go. They didn't simply recite the scriptures. No, they took the time and they exhorted the people 
And so here Paul declares it as, this is the word of God. And that's a bold statement. Especially those folks that come from a Roman Catholic background. Say, what? The, the, the preaching is the word of God? Well, you have to understand it rightly. What comes out of the man's mouth up here is not ex cathedra. It is not proclaiming new scripture. Yet at the same time, Paul says, what they were preaching is the word of God. So here you have this, it's not a paradox, it's not a contradiction, but you have men who are fallible men proclaiming exactly what God needed them to proclaim to this people. It's very similar to how we, when we come to the table, we feed upon Christ. It's not the mere act of eating the bread and drinking the wine that joins us and unites us to Christ. There's more going on there, and we are united to Christ of those that are his. For an outsider could come in, they could eat the bread, they could drink the wine, but that doesn't unite them to Christ spiritually. We see in Romans 10, 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him on whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And so we see that God ordains these means. This is how he proclaims his word. How he proclaims the gospel is through this preaching. So what is this preaching? Well, it's not just me standing up here giving my opinion about God. Preaching is where Christ speaks using his ordained servants. And in my case, I'm a licensed uh, servant under the oversight of ordained servants. So we, as a body, we see in a glass dimly. As I or any minister preaches, we should use Windex and not paint, as I've heard before. So what do I mean by that, using Windex and not paint? My job in proclaiming the word up here is not to paint a new picture for you to see. The picture is already painted right here. I am simply here trying to help wipe away the smudges from your own eyes so that you may see more clearly the gospel that's already there for you. It's to help you hear, to help you see. But ultimately, only Christ can reveal Christ. No amount of preaching from myself or any other man in this pulpit can ever reveal Christ to you. For only Christ can reveal Christ to you. And so how do we know that this was the word of God being preached to them? Well, as we see in here in verse 13, we can see that it's effective by their lives. It effectively works in those who believe, it says in verse 13. And we know that's true because we see it elsewhere, as in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So the word does something. It's not the pen and ink that's powerful. It's Christ who is powerful. And Christ is the one who works in us. So the gospel here was effective in the lives of those in the church at Thessalonica. But the gospel was presented using means. So here we see that the power of the gospel is worked out through very particular means, specifically that of the ministers that were sent. Now, the people could trust that the gospel was being proclaimed, not from anything intrinsic in the minister. 
but from the extrinsic character of God. And I'll repeat that. The people could trust that the gospel was being proclaimed not from anything intrinsic in the minister, but from the extrinsic character of God. So what do I mean by that? Well, the ministers came with integrity, and so the people recognized that. And with integrity came the message, and that message had integrity. But that message that had integrity was, came with integrity not because of those men. It came because of the God who sent those men. It came because of the, uh, the integrity of God and the attributes of God that foster that integrity. So there were three areas here where Paul, that Paul mentions that really foster that integrity, all three of which were external to the messenger. First, he's the God who commissioned them. Second, he was the God who witnesses. Third, he's the God who tests the hearts. So he's the God that commissions them, he is the God who witnesses, and he's the God who tests the hearts. So beginning in verse 4, he has the... He would be the God who commissions them. Specifically, it says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Here we see these men were approved by God. And first off, we need to take note, they were approved. But the, the other half of that is, who were they approved by? They were approved by God. It's not that we were looking at they got approval from some other man, some other agency, some anything else. These men were approved by God, and God is the one who does approving. They were entrusted with something. That something was the gospel. So they were given a stewardship with that. And with that stewardship came both authority and responsibility. And that's what we see here with a commission. And you'll find that oftentimes when one is commissioned to go do something. They have that both authority and responsibility to do that. And with that, that gave them great boldness. So they didn't have to fear what the people of Thessalonica or the people of Philippi or the people of Corinth might think. They could go out and preach with boldness. And you can see the results of that. It's why they were very quickly kicked out of Philippi and Thessalonica and elsewhere. Verse 5. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Flattery was not needed. And this is one of the things that was going on, especially in the, this portion of the Roman Empire. There were many orators who were professional speechists. They would go out and they would make speeches. These were the pop stars of the time in Rome. People desired to go out and be an orator. Uh, it's definitely not something we see nowadays. There are many uh, modern-day uh, replacements to that. But back then, this was a very common thing for people to uh, desire to be educated, desire to go out and proclaim something, whatever that something might be. And so very often, as, as people would come into these towns, they would be, be presented with these various ideas, these various orators. Most of the time, though, these orators were seeking to flatter them so that they could make a living. And that is how the orator would make a living. They would find someone in a town in order to sponsor them. And so this would be almost a fundraising effort. But here that's not what we see. Paul didn't feel the need that he needed to flatter them. He had that commission from God 
knowing that he was supported and approved by the God who sent him, not by the people that were going to support him in the town. Now, the immediate application here is to three apostles going around. However, I think we can make the application as well to not only elders and pastors of local churches that stay in the local body, but there are some applications made to families as well as in the civil magistrate. And as soon as I say all three of those things, I know my students will go, hey, that's what we're talked about with God and government. Those are our three forms of jurisdiction here. So we have the church offices, we have the family, and we have the state. Well, in the church, we see, obviously, the commission that is given to the elders, who are the jurisdictional heads of that, is the word and sacraments. And so they can go boldly and proclaim the word, just as the apostles were doing here. And they have a duty to guard the sacraments. Now, something like this, a man doesn't take that upon himself, as it says in Hebrews 5.4, specifically referencing Christ as the, the high priest. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. But likewise, and take heed, especially as we just prayed, there are many of you that are sitting here now that will be future elders. And so take heed to this. As 1 Timothy 3.1 says, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of bishop or elder, he desires a good work. So there may be you out here who will be shepherding the flock in the future. Realize that when that occurs, you have that same commission. God will appoint you. God will approve you to that position. And so you can proclaim the word boldly in that. So it says in verse 4 that there's also a testing and approval. But where does that testing and approval come from? It's not from men, but it's from God. And with that brings that great responsibility, that entrusting of the gospel there. Just as Paul and Silas and Timothy preached and exhorted with great boldness because of how God had commissioned them, fathers too can apply that understanding to your specific realm of jurisdiction. So what is that commission that God has given to each household? It's to shepherd your family. God has appointed you to do that. From the moment you had a family, from the moment you said, I do. So Kyle, in a week, you have your own family. God will give you that commission. With or without children, you have a commission from God to shepherd your help me. If God gives our families children, you have a commission from God to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Whether that be through family worship on a regular basis, whether that be through private times of study with your children and with your spouse, you have that commission and you can do it boldly just as the apostles were able to proclaim boldly to the church in Thessalonica. You've been approved by God in this. Now, you have that freedom, you have that responsibility not to do anything. You can't run amok. Your freedom falls within the constraints of God's word. You may do anything that God's word allows, and you're required to do all the things that God's word requires. You can't run amok of that, but realize you have great power in your homes so that your family may glorify God. Now, also, there will be some in here that very well may be called to the civil magistrate. This will apply to you as well. There will be a commission, and you will be approved for that particular post, whatever that may be. 
And so I want you to look back at this and remember that when God places you there, if he places you there, you have that same authority, that God wants you there in that spot for a particular reason. So go through that position with boldness. Don't shrink back. Don't flatter, whether it's your constituents, whether it's the other people that you work with in the civil magistrate. There should be a boldness that goes forth from you there. Don't be a man pleaser. So in all these spheres, we have a duty to obey God, but a freedom in all the spheres to operate within the bounds that God has provided. So now, again, going back to this, that how do we know that these people come with integrity? And it's because of these attributes that God has imparted. Because of God, we can believe God's word. So in addition to God being a God who commissions his servants in these spheres, he's also a God that witnesses. So what do we mean by witnessing? The Greek in it's theos martus, which that may all sound Greek to you, but most likely it, it means God martyrs. That should sound familiar. So God martyrs. What is martyring? So it's God not only sees, but he witnesses. So it's a twofold meaning in this here. He sees all that Paul, Silas, and Timothy do here. And so because the people know that God sees this, that builds integrity into the message. They can trust that what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are proclaiming is trustworthy because God sees it. And God testifies to their integrity. We see this again in verse 10. If you jump down there. You are witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. So not only does God witness, they witness as well the same thing that God sees. And finally, we see that also that God fosters the integrity of the message by being a God that tests the hearts. Again, in verse 4, he says that he perceives their motives. He, he understands what's going on inside. It's not just the external results or effects. That's often what pragmatism is. For those that, the, the best way I think to remember pragmatism is the ends justify the means. Do the, the end results, is that what matters? And in this case, no. God tests the hearts. He knows not only the what's going on, in this case, the proclaiming of his word, but the why are they doing it. That matters to God as well. And so because of what God has done, because of his integrity, and not because of anything inherent in the messengers, the Thessalonians can trust that what is being preached is the word of God. So taking that, you can now jump back up to verse 3 and understand it a little bit more. So in verse 3, it says, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. And again, with the background here that the people in the Roman provinces are going to be a little suspicious of these orators coming in. He's mentioning to them, because of God, not because we're good men, but because of God, we're not like that. Because of what God is doing in us, we're not that way. So he mentions specifically three things there. And I think it's a, you can see the parallels in it if you rephrase it, where for our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, Think of it as that the exhortation that he gave came not from error, uncleanness, or was in deceit. 
Those three things are parallel there. So what does he mean by error? Well, most likely that there were no fallacies in it. He's not coming with a falsehood. The exhortation came not from uncleanness. That's more of the why it was being proclaimed. It was not out of any impure desire. And the exhortation came not from deceit. So the how it was being proclaimed. It wasn't fraudulently or maliciously proclaimed there. Because all of these things are going to be potential stumbling blocks for those people in Thessalonica. And exhortation was what they were doing for their brief time. As it went, if you flip back over, if you or just remember from Acts 17, that's where we get the chronology of what was going on behind the scenes, uh, accounting for when Paul was in Thessalonica. Acts 17, 2 through 3 says, For three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. So he had but three short weeks there, preaching to them and ministering to them before they ended up having to flee Thessalonica. And so there were big hurdles that they had to overcome. But ultimately, the gospel was effective. They were able to exhort and to proclaim that there was a Messiah, that many of the Jews, as they were preaching in the synagogues, already knew that a Messiah would come. But Paul was able to take that and apply it to Jesus Christ, who specifically died for the people's sins and was risen again by God the Father. So it's the integrity that the Lord fostered here that allowed them to exhort in the way that they did. Well, not only did the messengers come with the integrity, but they also came with much love. So the other portion of what the passage talks about here is really the love that you can see in the minister and in the pastor. And the love that the pastor shows really reflects Christ's love to his bride. The elder's shepherd is under shepherds and must reflect that love of Christ to the people. You can see in verses 7 through 8 that they were gentle as in a motherly fashion. So this is very much the, the kind and gentle side of being a pastor. This wasn't as a nurse caring for someone else's children, as a, a shepherd caring for some other flock's sheep. But this is as a mother caring for her own children. And so this love that he describes here, this is what drives them to impart the gospel and give their lives for the flock there. I thought of a, a good example that at least one family will know the family we're, we're referring to here, but they're not here. But there was a time we were visiting with a family out in Phoenix, Arizona, and we had our 160-pound Mastiff dog with us, and we took him everywhere we went on military trips. And while we were there, this particular family was one of the first families that we came across that had somewhat of a farming adventure. They had hundreds of dairy cattle, but they also had chickens. And unfortunately, the dog got off his leash, and the dog found the chickens. So what happens when a dog gets in the chicken coop? Well, the first thing that happens is the mother hen begins to protect all the little ones. And that just happened instantly. The other half of the equation was, what do you think the rooster did? The rooster went after the dog. And so we see this in a very tangible example. 
this applies to us as well. It, the same thing would happen if someone were to come into a, a church building and start assaulting or brandishing a weapon. The, the mothers among us would protect the babies, would protect the children. What would the men do? They would fight. They would stop the intruder. And so we see that, that Paul addresses here that there is the motherly side of pastoring, but he also addresses the fatherly side. So we jump down to verse 11. It says, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children. So he's addressing both sides of it here. He does the same thing in his parallel ministry in Corinth, because as you can recall, Paul's writing from that area. He's ministering at the local time to the people of Corinth, but at the same time writing back to the people of Thessalonica. In 1 Corinthians 4.15, we see that, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. So Paul's addressing these themes in multiple places. But here specifically we see that with the father, that exhortation, that comfort, and that charging his children. We also see in verse 9, if you'll jump up to that, that it's another concrete example of the parenting that these ministers were exhibiting. For it says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. So here we see how Paul and Silas and Timothy, they weren't a burden to these spiritual children. They were going through, they were raising their own funds at the time, and that's what was needed at the time. As we mentioned, the orators out there, they were expecting to be uh, called upon uh, or cared for by the local populace. But in this particular case, they decided, no, they're going to raise their funds. They're going to tent make while they were there so that they may not be a burden. It's not a requirement for tent making by any means. In verse 6, they actually quote that they had the authority to do what they needed to do. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. So they had the authority to do so, but they chose to minister in this way out of love for the, their spiritual children there. So these parental aspects of how Paul and pastors in general minister to the flock are reflective of how Christ ministers to us. So the example of the minister there was evident among them, and it was a strong part of their discipleship. In verse 10, we see that you are witnesses in God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you. We see that first set of three there followed by another set of three. So they're devoutly, justly, and blamelessly. That's how they behaved so that they could then exhort, comfort, and charge them. Because of the first three, they were able to do the second three. And so then all of this then boils down to the so what. What's the point of them showing this love? What's the point of them coming with all of this and being able to have integrity in this message? And it's so that they can walk worthy of God, called them in verse 12. That you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So this is what elders do. With integrity, 
They love the flock, just as Jesus loves the flock, so that the flock would walk worthy of God, the God who calls them. And when that happens, that's when we see the fruits of the gospel. Likewise, that's what you as fathers and mothers are called to do. You're to love your family, as Paul describes here, so that your family can walk worthy of the God who called them. We all must walk worthy of God. And this, unfortunately, is where we fall short. Future pastors that are out here, this is what your pastoral goal should be. It should be what your desire is to see this flock walk worthy of God. Parents, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, gives us the charge. And it says, In these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. This passage here applies to your children, but don't forget your spouse. You must shepherd your spouse so that she may be walking worthy for our God. So are we walking worthy of God in this? Are we discipling our children diligently? Are we leading them and worshiping Christ on a daily basis? If you are doing all that God asks you to do, then you can expect with great hope that God will do as he promised. For it says in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. But if you've fallen short, God's word is more powerful than your failures. The gospel, as it declares here, is effective. So God has a high standard. It's such a high standard, it's called perfection. He requires it from every last one of us here. But none of you, not I, not you, not Pastor Lovett, no one can meet that standard save Christ. And Christ has met that standard. Christ has lived a sinless life, and he has died for our sins. And so we see that he loves us enough to send ministers who will faithfully fulfill their commission. He sends us men approved by God for our good. He sends us imperfect men that are sinners, but he uses them to declare his word. And these men declare week after week that you're to come into his presence. Confess your sins to Christ, who mediates on our behalf and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Yes, he consecrates us, us, his people, and he sets us apart. And he does this so that we may commune with him. So as we conclude this portion of the liturgy, that's all it is, one portion of our extended regular corporate worship time together. As we gather before our king, we must hear his voice declaring this to us. Come. Come to him confessing your sins. Come to him and be cleansed. Come to him and feast upon him. And only he, through the power of the gospel, can make you walk worthy of God. Let's pray. O gracious Father, you've heard your word preached this day by an imperfect man, but in your perfect manner. Yes, you have faithfully sent forth your word. You have effectively worked, 
not only in the lives of the Thessalonians, but in the lives of the saints here at Heritage. Like a mother who cherishes her own children, so you care for us and are gentle with us. And yet you also exhort, comfort, and charge us all in this high calling to walk worthy before you. Give us the ears to hear, the strength to obey, and may we always be found worthy in your sight, not in our own righteousness, but may you always look upon your Son who clothes us with his righteousness. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.